Welcome everyone to this week's Global Intelligence Update and we've got a great guest with us, Dave Greenberg, who grew up in New York City but has been based in Wellington, New Zealand for over 30 years. He is one of New Zealand's longest serving rescue helicopter crewmen, taking part in nearly 4,000 rescue helicopter missions over a 25-year career. In 2020, he was recruited into the Minister of Health and spent two years working as a response manager for New Zealand's national COVID-19 response. Today, Dave uses his extensive experience to help people and organizations prepare for, respond to, and recover from any crisis they might fight, might, might face. Sorry, Dave. The floor is all over to you. Cool. Thank you, Chris. And, and hi, everyone, wherever you are in the world. I, I love these sessions because it's morning, evening, and afternoon somewhere. So, um, yeah, Chris covered off who I am. And what I'm going to be talking to you today is about overcoming the overwhelm of crisis. And one of the things I have with my background in the um, being a first responder and with the COVID stuff is sometimes the chaos is going on around me and I wonder why, because I kind of just sit there and it's just business as usual for me. And one of the things I've learned is that um, we could all there. There's a framework that we could use to over overcome that overwhelm and move on and handle things really appropriately. So we'll um, we'll get into it. And this, you know, this is a house fire here in um, New Zealand. And whether or not this is a crisis or BAU, business as usual, depends on a couple of different things. And in my experience, 90% of things could become BAU or just a relatively minor incident. And then about 10% of things are going to become a full-blown crisis which an organization or people have to worry about. And some of what changes that is the lens we look at things with. So if you're the firefighters at this house fire, this is BAU. This is what you train for. It's what you do every day. It's no big deal. Um, it's probably a bit exciting. And if you're the people here in the um, watching and that's your house that's burning this is probably one of the bigger crises that you're going to face in your life so that the lens we're looking at the problem with is quite often going to determine whether it's a crisis or it's BAU the the other thing that's going to make a really big difference is are you prepared so I know a lot of the people listening are parts of small business or like myself, just a, a business of one. And others are working in bigger companies or have bigger companies, but we all need to be prepared. And that could look like anything from be having systems and processes to having the right equipment. Uh, one of the things I'm really aware of 
um, in the the picture behind me with me sitting on the outside of the helicopter, we trusted our lives to carabinas. Now, here's a couple of carabinas, which are really useful for holding a set of keys. But I certainly wouldn't trust, trust my life to that one. And this is a steel carabiner that's triple locking. And if I was going to go out and hang off to the helicopter again, I would certainly want one of these carabiners, not a cheap one. And that's the kind of thing that we need to think about when we're preparing. Are we just doing a checkbox exercise that says buy a carabiner or put together a kit or put together a standard operating procedure? Or are we truly putting together the stuff that we need in order to be properly prepared? Now, one of the things that you need in my mind is a good framework. And so what I'm going to walk you through here is a size up framework that I've developed it's basically six questions um, to ask yourself or to ask the team, which will help control the overwhelm. And uh, before I get into it, I just the size up is something that I learned when I was a volunteer firefighter back in the States. So as the first arriving fire engine gets to the scene of a fire, they make a call on the radio back to the um, comm center, communication center, and to the other responding fire engines. And the size up basically lets them know what they're being faced with. Um, it might be in the case of that fire I showed you in the first slide, it's a single story dwelling with houses close by, whether or not there are hydrants and um, nearby, but they're going to give uh, an assessment. And the assessment lets everyone else coming in start thinking about the problem that they're coming to face. So that's the whole idea of the size up. And the first part of it in the modified one we're doing here is we need to all be trying to solve the same problem. And what I mean by that, we, we need to ask what is the nature of the situation? Now, we've got a whole bunch of different situations here, um, but if you were the woman having a heart attack and you're the CE of a small business, you've got a different focus on this. The nature of the situation for you is I'm dying. The nature of the situation for the company is what are we going to be doing now that our CE is either going to die or they're gonna be in hospital. So quite often things go off the rail early because we're solving different problems. Obviously the Twin Towers, that was an overwhelming event that was a crisis for thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people, but a child hitting being hit by a car is a crisis for the family, and it can be a crisis for the business if there's no plans in place for other people to take part to help. So number one, what is the nature of the situation? 
The second question we need to think about is who's leading our response? Because what we end up with is different situations. We might have different people respond, uh, being in charge or leading. Now, quite often people assume that the CE or the managing director or the boss is going to be leading the response. I've got in one of the, in another session I do, I talk quite often about sometimes the boss shouldn't lead the crisis response. They should become governance and they should keep the strategic outlook for the overall event and for the company. So you have to decide pretty early on who is it that's leading our response. And if I find my mouse, then there we go. Um, who's leading our response. The third question and the third thing we have to do is we have to start picking apart the facts. One of the things that we know happens all the time is that facts come into the equation and alongside the facts come all the assumptions and all the information that's coming in from Facebook and an incident response, uh, one of the things we have is we have an intelligence function. And the thing that the intelligence function does is it changes information into intelligence. So it goes out there, it gets all the different information, and then it turns them into facts. So what do we know to be a fact? That is the next thing we need to think about. Then we keep going. And the next thing we want to do is figure out what is it that we don't know? What are the assumptions we're making? What are all the missing pieces in what we're trying to solve? So what we don't know can fill a lot more information than what we do know. And I'll give you an example of that. Um, when I was working in the COVID response, every time there was an outbreak, we would get together a team and we would go through questions like this, an assessment. And one of the things we would have in the early stages is one whiteboard that had all the facts we knew, that there was a 35-year-old male in Devonport who hadn't been overseas, who just went to a community center testing station and has come back positive. They, and then we might know that they've said there's nothing else, that they know other people they've been around. So the, the facts would take up one small whiteboard. What we didn't know could take up the whiteboards all the way around the room, our incident management team room. And the reason you need to establish what you know to be a fact and what don't we know is the what don't we know will start forming the basis of how you move forward. Because the things you don't know are the things you need to answer. And as you answer them, things become facts. This is just such a critical piece of it. And not getting the 
what we know to be a fact and what we're assuming confused because they are two very, very different things. By the way, if anyone's got any questions as we're going, I'm trying to keep an eye on the chat, but um, raise your virtual hand. And um, I like answering questions as we're going, because if you've got the question, then someone else probably does too. So that's the next question, the what don't we know? Once we've established who are, what's the nature of the situation, who's our leader, what the facts are, what we don't know, then the next thing we want to do is we want to start figuring out what do we need to understand and when. And this too is quite critical because we're faced with all the things we don't know and the things that we do know to be a fact, but we need to start putting it together into an understandable thing. And some of what we need to understand is critical and we need to understand it now. And something else that we need to understand, we, we don't need to understand today, tomorrow, maybe forever. And a good example of this, going back to the COVID stuff, if we waited in each outbreak to figure out how the first person got COVID, we never would have controlled the outbreak because the problem we had was that sometimes we never figured out how case number one actually got the COVID. But what we knew was there was an outbreak and our job was to manage the outbreaks. And it was another team's job to try to establish what it is that um, how the problem happened. Now, sometimes understanding how the problem happened will be critical because it might prevent the problem from getting bigger or the problem from yeah, get, getting bigger or happening again in a different area. So that's one of the things we need to understand. And the when is just starting to set some priorities. The next thing and the last of the six questions is really about setting our priorities. It's when do we need to act and how? And this is now taking all the information we've just gathered and starting to put together a plan. Now I've got, so these are the six questions. I'll just tell you about this 40-70 rule um, of Colin Powell, who's since died, but he was a retired general with the US Army. And he talked about the 40-70 rule. Don't take action if you only have enough information to give you less than what you think is 40% of being right, but don't wait until you have 100% or enough facts, because if you would make decisions with less than 40%, you didn't have enough information to make a, a reasonable decision. But if you waited in the defense, um, stuff. If you waited until the 70% or over the 70%, you might miss the opportunity to strike. 
And where this became really apparent to me is when I was on the rescue helicopter, we would sometimes get a call about a boat overturned in Cook Strait. Now, Cook Strait is just south of Wellington. It's the body of water between well, um, the North and South Islands. It's at its shortest, at its narrowest point, about 14 miles wide, and it's about 50 miles long. And a boat overturned in Cook Strait was well below the 40% of the information we needed. But as soon as we had enough information to pinpoint it just a little bit, so like south of this point or two miles off of this beach, that gave us our 70%. What we could do, and this is really important for you to think about, when you haven't quite reached the 40%, it doesn't mean you can't be doing things. For us on the helicopter, as soon as we got the call, we would start getting the helicopter ready. We'd get into wetsuits or whatever role we were playing. We would put life rafts on board the helicopter. And then as soon as we had a rough idea, we hit that 40%, off we went. The greater than 70% was all the information that the police were gathering about the job. Like we didn't care as we took off if there was one person on board or if there are five people on board. It essentially didn't change what we were going to do. We didn't care what color their clothing was. We didn't care any of the additional information that they could gather just didn't matter to us because we just needed to get into the area and start looking for and rescuing people. That gave us our 70% and off we went. So the 40-70 rule is a really good rule to keep in mind when you're looking at something like a, a crisis or something you need to decide how you're going to handle it. Now, before I give you an example of something that I think is important, what I'd really like to know is, are there any of these, um, any, any questions you've got or any situations that we might be able to um, apply the framework to? So I could show you that this does indeed work as a, a, a good framework. So I have a question, uh, if, I, if I can jump into the conversation. Um, Please. My job is to, in a realm of innovation. So pretty yeah. much a lot that we don't know because it's new. Um, and you still need to get started to try to figure things out. So how do you apply the rule of 4070 or any other those question of framework how can I apply that in the realm of innovation and putting forth new ideas? Well, that's really interesting because the in order to do 40%, you have to have a rough idea of what 100% looks like. And in the realm of new innovations, uh, what is 100%? You, you might not have any idea. But I think that 
this kind of thing can be applied by, you might not be using all the questions, um, but at some point you would have the gut feel and that you're at a good point and that good point is probably greater than 40%. Uh, one of the things I've, I've spent a lot of time studying is the gut feeling and that the gut is actually um, has its own brain. And one of the things that I've just learned to trust so much in my own life is when my gut tells me something or the hairs start um, standing up on the back of my neck, so often that gut feel will put me in that realm of the 40 to 70. Um, and I see I'm getting a thumbs up on that. It, it really can make a big difference. Um, but there is, because you might find out later that was only 20%, but uh, because you're positive about it, it brought you better, or you might find it was 90%. Um, I don't deal in the realm of new innovation, so I can't be too specific with that. That's okay. I like the answer. I think the gut feeling is probably also a, good, a very good angle. I'll let Steve right. ask the question. Cool, Steve. Yeah, and it's partly to uh, respond to Philippe. I, I, I see exactly in, in the realm of what Philip does in innovation that you're not just going to go as, as, and look at anything, okay? When you're innovating, you're, you've got some idea of what you need to be looking at. It's like you taking off and just going in the right direction the, as best as you can. <clears throat> Where I think the 70% works well in the innovation aspect is that it takes you to the point that you are starting to understand what is feasible in the innovation. So that you've moved from the unknown in 40 to 70%, so you're on the right track and you're not going in, in a reverse direction, Philippe. So I, I would guess, you know, your whole work is a 40, 70% process in, in innovation yeah absolutely but my question to you Dave was and it's almost an unanswerable thing but I'm going to do it because I, I deal with complex <laughs> situation complex systems theory is okay so 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 we're, we're really heading down a big tunnel with with climate change okay so yes we're trying to be prepared we, we are you know, looking at all of the possible feasible catastrophes, et cetera. Um, yeah. So, so how do we move from the 40 to 70, in your view? Uh, thanks for giving me a, an easy one. I appreciate that, Steve. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> I'm going to answer that, not answer it, because I don't know, but one of the the things I learned. So my COVID, two years on COVID, working at the national level of um, government. So I was regularly in meetings with the prime minister and our cabinet. And one of the things that really amazed me about them is the questions they asked. And what I really learned is that the, the answers to climate change, or as I was doing it through COVID, is through the questions we ask 
And lover or hater, and I know that there are people um, on both sides of it, being able to communicate things is important. And I thought our prime minister was a good communicator um, in COVID. There are a lot of people who in the country who think she's ruined the country and economically. But one of the things I got to witness every day was the scientists and the doctors who were in there talking about COVID, talking about vaccines and all of that different stuff. And I started to learn who I could trust, in my opinion. You know, who were the good advisors? Who were the ones that were a bit nutty? And, and we need to find the advisors we trust. Uh, I, I think as I'm not American anymore, I, I've given up my American citizenship. And one of the reasons I've given it up, certainly not the only one, is that the U.S. has become so divided. Like either you're MAGA or you're not MAGA, either you believe in climate change or you don't believe in climate change. And I don't think we're ever going to get any consensus for moving forward on that stuff, um, whether it be COVID, the next pandemic, or climate change. Um, so there you go. I heard my own voice for a bit and I didn't answer anything really. I, I, but you've triggered something with me is with COVID. The, the situation was really in your face. Every day, somebody you knew died, got sick, was critical in hospital, et cetera. Okay. And yet climate change is an insidious thing. And it could be in a company. There could be stuff happening that's just this insidious thing. It's happening so slowly, you don't see it. Okay. So I go to your six questions. Okay, so what do we know to be fact, number three, and what don't we know? Okay, and number four is critical. What don't, doesn't that company know about what's changing? Do they have enough information to even know anything's changing? Do we even know, you know, what don't we know about climate change? Okay, and so what should we be trying to find out even more than we do now? But it's the whole 4070 thing is we're in between the 40 and the 70 because we can't see the sense, the deep sense of urgency like you did in COVID. Uh, I would agree with that. We, we can't, some people can. And I, I think using this framework at the moment, one of the advantages you have, uh, if you're someone who believes in climate change and believe things are changing, you've now got the chance to be doing things and that can give you a huge competitive advantage over someone who might not believe it. Um, so what you do with the information, you know, is that question number five, what do we want to understand and how soon? If you've got a business that is dependent on climate, then you want to understand, you want to find some trusted advisors and make your own decisions now. And that might give you Excellent. a huge a huge competitive advantage over someone who doesn't. Like to me, I, I think anyone who doesn't agree that the climate's doing weird things just is got shudders over their eyes. Whether it's man-made or it's cyclic, doesn't really matter. We're just seeing the effect of it. Um, but then for your business, 
um, you know, what does it mean to you? And what can you do with that information now that the, the next guy or next woman might not be doing? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Anyone else, um, any other questions or thoughts or how to apply the framework? Just, just another quick one. We here in South Africa are experiencing huge problems with electricity because of mismanagement from a government point of view of all the big power stations. And exactly what you were talking about there is the people that have said, we, we are going to rise above the reliance on the coal-fired power stations and go solar, okay, from our whole business point of view, just go off the grid so that the government doesn't control our daily production rate or whatever it is, okay? That, that to me, is where your six questions really apply. Great. I, I mean, if you found a way to apply these questions, I think that's great. Uh, for me, I know they work. I'm working with companies every day, every week that are applying these in different ways. Um, I've just put up the slide of uh, just the advantages of using them. Uh, if you use the questions and the more you, you use them, the easier they become to use. It allows you to quickly turn what can be overwhelmed into a workable plan. It uh, C-Suite's a new, new one on me. Um, one of my friends uses it all the time. They, if you're CEO, CMO, CFO, if your executive team uses the questions and is willing to step back and be governance as opposed to being in, in the fight, then they get to face crisis differently, which yeah. reduces the... And one of the things we want to do, and I've seen this happen time and time again, is a company gets so focused on the crisis they don't worry or they they take their eye off the ball of the other 90%, the part of the business that's still working, because very few incidents are so big that they take over your whole company. But if all the C-suite and all the energy goes into just fixing the crisis, that's when your competitors get the advantage of over you. Um, as opposed to them thinking that they're in crisis, they're going to be vulnerable, and then finding out that you're actually stronger at the end of the crisis than you were before. And, and the the um, the framework allows your organization to quickly restore or hopefully just retain control and keep a competitive advantage an environment of Christ, of chaos. So, so that's how I'm taking all these years of crisis management and now applying it to the way that you might use it in business. Because what I've really learned is that um, the person in Cook Strait after the boat's overturned, who's waiting for rescue, is not all that different to a company who or a person who's waiting for a rescue um, that might or might not be coming. So the more we could do to help ourselves, the better off we are. Any other questions or anything I could help with 
why we're still here. Cool, a short session's a good session. Um, I, I hope I hope you all got some value out of it. Um, yep. LinkedIn's a great place to get in touch with me if you'd like to. And um, yay, and I wish I could tell you that my book, you could go and buy it or I could send you a copy. It's out of, um, I'm just updating it at the moment and then it's gonna be a free digital download, but it's just a book about um, my life getting to New Zealand in the rescue helicopter years. But anyway, thank you very much, everyone. Um, Steve, thanks for all the questions. Um, if I could solve that climate change one, money will never be an issue for me again. Um, <laughs> and then I'll come see you for a safari. Fantastic. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Dave, for being with us this week. And thank you for everyone joining us in this live session. Hope you guys had some great insight to take with them and those questions are quite powerful so thank you again dave and i hope everyone has a, a great weekend oh, sorry a great week ahead <laughs> week ahead <laughs> thanks chris cheers everyone everyone